theme this evening will be Blessed Assurance. Our passage will be Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We'll be focusing on the verses 29 through 39. Romans chapter 8, 29 through 39. first part of our lesson will have to do with how God identifies us, and then the second part of our lesson will include some great promises from God, under the big theme of blessed assurance. first part of our lesson will focus on verses 29 and 30, so let's read those together, Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Five ways in which God identifies us here. First of all, we are those who have been foreknown by Him, foreknowledge of God. We are the foreknown ones. God in His knowledge knows everything there is to know, past, present, and future, of course. He knows everything that's ever going to happen. For example, He knew that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. Looking over to Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, this Jesus who was delivered up according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Acts 2.23, you also by wicked hands did crucify and slay him, Acts 2.23. In other words, we know that God a long time ago prophesied that his son would come and die for our sins. In the book of Genesis, he's the seed of of the woman. In the book of Exodus, he's the unblemished lamb. In the book of Numbers, he is the brazen serpent on that pole. In 2 Samuel 7, he is the one that was set on the throne of David. There are many specific prophecies. The prophecy of Psalm 22, the prophecy of Psalm 16, the prophecy of Isaiah 53. All the prophecies of Jesus' birth and his nature and his suffering and death and even resurrection found throughout the Psalms, the prophets, and, and even the minor prophets. Okay? God knows everything there is to know. He knows everything that's going to happen. He knows the future. He knows your future. Okay? We are the four known ones. God knowing our future does not mean that he directs our activities. God knowing the future does not mean that he directs our activities. If that was the case, then that would do away with our free will, and God has made us with free will. Deuteronomy 30 verse 19 says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your children may live. So God knows the future, but that doesn't mean he directs our activities at all. If that was the case, then 
then man would no longer be responsible before God. And we are to be responsible before God. One day we would give an account of what we have done in this body, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. God doesn't direct our activities. He, he knows He knows the future, but it doesn't mean He forces us to do certain things and not do other things. Okay. If God directed all of our activities in that kind of a personal way, then every command in the Bible, every passage in the Bible, would have no meaning for us. Okay. But God does know the future. We are the, we are the four known ones. We're the four known ones. Thinking about that responsibility and God's foreknowledge, I think about the death of Jesus, and I think about all those who were involved in that deed of crucifying Jesus, were they responsible for what they did to Jesus? They were. They were. Did God foreknow that Jesus would die on the cross? Yes. But those who did the deed, were they responsible for the deed they did? They were. Just going back to Acts 2.23, that's, that's why Peter is saying what he's saying. The death of Jesus was part of the definite eternal plan of God and foreknowledge of God. Yet ye... Ye, standing before Peter, you people, ye, standing before Peter, you did by wicked hands crucify and kill uh, this man. Now one of the comfort spots about the foreknowledge of God is that we can know that way back in the eternal mind of God, he had our salvation in mind. Way back in the eternal counsel of God, The Lord had His love fixed on us. Even before He created the stars, even before He created one person on earth, He went ahead and He had His love fixed on us. Therefore, He's been thinking about our salvation longer than we've ever thought about being alive. So, first of all, we are the foreknown ones. Secondly, we are the predestined ones. We are the predestined ones. Okay. According here to uh, Romans 8, 29 and 30. Okay. All this means is that God decided a long time ago that those who would be part of His people and be His saved people are those who would obey His will. He determined that before the foundation of the world, God determined that those who would be part of His people in this day and age, they would be the ones who would be obedient to His will. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Jesus is the author of eternal salvation unto all those who obey Him. In other words, a long time ago, in God's eternal scheme of things, He predetermined that, that those, a certain type of people, He predetermined that a certain type of people would be those who would be serving Him. Looking over in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter uh, 1 and verse number 4, you see that this is how Paul explains this. He says, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, blameless before him in love. You can see there that what God did a long time ago in making us the predestined ones is that He determined 
that a certain type of people would be his servants. We become those certain, we can become that certain type of person by choosing to submit to his will. It says, though, we are the predestined ones, predestinated, predestined ones. In other words, God beforehand determined a destination for us. Well, that destination is for us to have that obedient mindset that would lead us to submit to God and then eventually enjoy the home with Him uh, in heaven. What it comes down to is that a person chooses either to receive personally the gospel of Jesus Christ or thrust it away from Him. Now, the comfort spot here, to me, is that we see in God's foreknowledge and we see in God's predestination the fact that He is the one that initiated this salvation process. He is the one that initiated this salvation process. As we read in 1 John 4, 19, we love Him, why? Because He first loved us. God initiated this process. He knew a long time ago that we would need His mercy. We would need His grace. We would need His Son. We would need His will. We would need His covenant to submit to. We would need His standard to obey. He knew this a a long time ago. He initiated this. And when we realize that God took the first initiative, then we come in behind Him and we take the initiative to submit to His will. We are the foreknown ones, first of all, and we are the predestined ones. Thirdly, we are the called ones. Here are the facts about God's calling. We're the called ones. It comes from God because Hebrews 3 verse 1 says it is a heavenly calling. It is God that does the calling. God calls through the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. God calls through the gospel. Paul makes that very clear. And then this gospel call is received by those who are humble, humble in spirit. Because we read in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, Paul says, Consider your calling, uh, brethren, that not many noble, not many wise, not many mighty receive this calling. The reason they don't receive the calling is because most of the time the mighty, the noble, and the wise, they are so full of pride, they see no need in receiving the gospel call. And so the gospel call comes from God. It comes through the gospel and it comes to those who have a humble spirit. And the gospel call has an aim of making us live a particular life. Okay, The gospel call will cause us, it has as its aim for us to, to live a certain type of life. I read here from Ephesians 4 verse 1. Ephesians 4, verse 1, that sums this up. I therefore, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another uh, in love and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, that's the aim of the call, is to make us live, to cause us to live, to lead us to live a certain peculiar, particular type of life, a life that is in Jesus Christ. 
And so we see that the, the calling of God comes from God. It comes through the gospel. It comes to the humble spirit. It causes us to live a peculiar life. And the ultimate goal of it is to get us in heaven. We remember Ephesians 4, verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, and one hope of your calling. That calling is to create that hope of heaven in us. You see, the word calling often refers to the, our commitment to Christ. See, in Ephesians, going back to Ephesians 4, verse 1, walk worthy of your calling. Going back to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, consider your calling, brethren. You remember Peter over in 2 Peter 1. He says, make your calling and election sure. A big comfort spot here for me in God's calling is the first of all the fact that he, he cares enough to call us. He cares enough to communicate to us through His gospel. And secondly, that He gives us the ability to respond to that call. It's extremely assuring to me. Now, our religious friends, they maintain that there are two calls. That there is the call from the Bible, but also there's an individual call that comes directly from God in sort of a miraculous uh, way. Okay. Now, that second part, that individual call, is not taught uh, in the New Testament Scriptures for us uh, today. Now, in New Testament times, some did receive a direct call from God. Okay. But those were the, in the days of the miracles. God doesn't work that way anymore. Well, for example, uh, Ken and I, with the uh, young people this morning, we noticed the beginnings of Paul's missionary journeys, Paul and Barnabas, and, and the Holy Spirit spoke directly and said, separate me, Barnabas and, and, and Paul, because I've got a work for them to do. Okay. We remember that God spoke directly to Philip to have him get together with the eunuch in Acts chapter 8. But the miraculous workings of God have been done away with now, that we have the complete revelation of God. But still, our religious friends maintain that there is a general call and a, a direct call uh, from God. And they will continue to say that you need this direct call, you need this punch from God, you need this direct call because we are spiritually dead. And dead men can't do anything. Okay. Now I've heard this from denominational preachers for a very long time. Okay, they maintain this. Okay. We're spiritually dead and dead men can't do anything, so you need a little extra punch, an, an extra calling, extra direct unction from, from the Lord uh, so that you can receive the gospel call. Okay. Of course, this is not true. This is not true. Now, it is true that before we come to Christ, we are spiritually dead. And it is true that dead people can't do anything. If we had a casket up here and someone's in the casket and we go up to him in the casket and we start talking to him, okay, he's not going to respond. What are you going to do if he does respond? But he's not going to respond. Okay. But the fact is, in this analogy that God uses in Scripture, that we are spiritually dead, you can take the analogy too far. And that's what our religious friends do. Okay? We are spiritually dead, but the Bible teaches that the spiritually dead can respond. They can respond 
to the calling of God. Wouldn't you say those assembled there on the day of Pentecost, fresh off the crucifixion of Jesus, wouldn't it be fair to say that they are spiritually dead? And wouldn't it be fair when they heard Peter say, you by, by lawless hands have crucified and killed the Savior, the very one that, G, that the Lord made, uh, that God made Lord in Christ, you have crucified him. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that they were convicted of being spiritually uh, dead? And what did they say? According to Acts uh, 2, 37 and 38, what did, what did those who were spiritually dead, what did they ask? They said, they were pricked in the heart. They said, what shall we do? What shall we do? That would have been a good time for Peter to say, well, you can't do anything. You can't respond. You're spiritually dead. But that's not what he said. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay. But a third way that God identifies us, we are the called ones. We are the foreknown ones. We are the predestined ones. We are the called ones. And we need to thank God that he cares enough to communicate. By the way, if you want to become godly, you become real efficient in communication. God cared enough to communicate to us and to create us in such a way that we can respond back to his call. And then right here in Romans 8, 29 and 30, it says... Paul does, that we are the justified ones. God's justification. We are the justified ones. This is the process by which God declares that we are not guilty, and then he declares that we are now righteous. First of all, we all need this justification because we're sinners. Secondly, we cannot earn this justification. We cannot earn it. Thirdly, this justification is based on the death of Jesus. Romans 5 discusses this all the way throughout. Romans 3 is the whole book of Romans. But it's, it's based on the, on the death of Jesus. You obtain this justification through obedient faith, Romans 5 verse 1. And the result of being justified is a tremendous peace that we receive from God. Notice with us in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, since we stated that, we need to read a little bit about it. Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified, there's our word, therefore we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've done this many, many times, so we won't do it right now, but you can clearly show that the type of faith that Paul is referring to there is an active, obedient, submissive faith uh, to God Almighty. What do you get from this? You get peace. You get peace. It's extremely comforting to know that one can live a life of no animosity toward God, no animosity toward other people, and no animosity with yourself. To me, that's, that's, that's completely assuring to our souls. And then a fifth way in which God identifies us is we are the glorified ones. So we are the foreknown ones, the predestined ones, we're the called ones, 
We're the justified ones. We are the glorified ones. When I think of glory, I don't know about you, but just in reading Scripture, when I think of glory, I think about the presence of God. This is certainly a prediction that if we maintain, if we stay on the faithful road of the gospel, that one day we will be in the very presence of God. You know, Paul says in Philippians 1, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is very far better. To be in the very presence of God. And it's totally right that we sing that, oh yes, we will live in glory one day. Oh yes, I'll live in glory. By and by, I'll live in glory. But there's also a sense in which we're the glorified ones now because isn't the Lord with us now? Doesn't the Lord say to us, Hebrews 13, verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's a sense in which we are, we are glorified now, but we will realize and enjoy ultimate glorification with God once we're there in heaven at His throne with Him by His side. Now, that's the first part of our lesson. The purpose, you might call this, not only can you call this God's way of identifying us, but you might look at this as a chain of salvation. The chain of salvation. The first link in that chain would be God's, pre, uh, God's foreknowledge. The second link in that chain, God's predestination. The third link in that chain would be God's calling. The fourth link in the chain would be God's justifying us. And the fifth link in that chain would be... Uh, God's glorification of us. But Paul mentions here, before we leave this part of our lesson, God, Paul mentions here that the purpose of our salvation, going back to Romans 8, 29 and 30, the purpose of our salvation is that we will be conformed, conformed to the image of His Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. Okay. That firstborn part there just seems, simply means preeminent. Preeminent. In other words, of all the people on earth, we who follow Christ are the most blessed ones. Because we have this association with Jesus and His will, and we have the great promise of hope to be with Him forever and ever uh, at His throne. Okay. But the purpose, the main purpose of salvation is to be conformed to the image of it, to be exactly like Christ. Let me ask you something. Are you there yet? Are you there yet? Am I there yet? Have I, am I at the point now where I'm now walking to be exactly like Jesus Christ? All of us are going to say no. That means we've got to continue to grow. But the purpose of our salvation is to be conformed to the image of His Son. So having seen these links in the, in the chain of salvation... Let's now move to the second part of our lesson, which is God's promises. Beginning in verse 31, Paul's going to ask a series of questions. And within these questions are very precious promises for those who follow him. Notice, though, Paul's first question, Romans 8, 31. He said, what shall we say to these things? What things? Things you've just been talking about, Paul, right? About salvation. It's almost as, as if Paul said, I've got to take a breather here. 
because it's really difficult to put into words all that the salvation in Jesus Christ actually means. What shall we say to these things? And then after he collects his thoughts a little bit, he comes with these different questions, about five questions, each containing a promise. Okay. Promise number one, no intimida- intimidation. Promise number one, no intimidation. Verse 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? Now, in reality, there's a lot of people that can be against us. There's a lot of people who are, who are against Christians, no doubt. Okay. But what damage can they do? What damage can those who are against Christians do to them as long as they remain faithful? One might say, well, they can use their evil influence and cause those who would be godly to become worldly. Yes, but not without our consent. As long as we, we remain faithful, then what can they do? What damage can they do? What damage can be done to us? If God be for us, then who can be against us? They'd have to become greater than God to do any damage to us. They would have to become greater than God to take away our salvation. Of course, that's never going to happen. No intimidation. Notice in Hebrews 13, we just noticed verse 5 a minute ago. The promise is, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Okay. And I think I've been at fault here, not emphasizing verse 6, Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13 verse 6. Notice these simple statements, but how powerful they are. First statement, the Lord is my helper. Second statement, I will not fear. And then the third statement is a question. What can man do unto me? That's it. That's it. First promise here of God is no intimidation. Second promise is no desolation. Notice verse 32. No desolation. Notice how it's put. He who, God, he who spared not his own son but gave him up for us all, shall he not with him graciously give us all things? Okay. We're not going to be left desolate when we follow Jesus Christ. That's great assurance. That's great assurance. In fact, the assurance here is this, that God will provide every necessary thing we need to complete our journey to heaven. Repeat that to yourself. God will provide every necessary thing we need to complete our journey to heaven. That's what's being assured here. Okay. Now we could jump all over the scripture and like, like to Psalm 37 and verse 25 where David says, I've been young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or, or the seed of the righteous begging for bread. But let's just stay right here. You know, that's a great passage and it belongs in this discussion. Let's just stay right here. Let Romans 8.32 sink down deep into your heart. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, shall he not with him graciously, freely give us all things? If he's going to give his son, what else is he going to leave out? If he's going to provide his son, won't he provide it all that we need? Surely, 
Surely that is the case. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If he will not spare his son, if he will give him up for us, then all these other things that we might need along our heavenward journey, will not God provide that as well? And the answer to that cannot be anything else, but yes, most assuredly he will. So first, no intimidation is the promise, and then no desolation. The third promise is no accusation. Notice here in Romans 8, in verse 33. His question is, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? Yes, they can hurl the charges against us, but they are insignificant. Why? Because it's only God's judgment that matters. It's only God's judgment that matters. Let them hurl. Let them hurl the charges. Bring on the charges, guys. Bring on the charges against God's elect. Bring it to us. Okay. But because we're in the Word, and we're allowing the Word to direct our lives, we're allowing the Word of God to shape the character that we're supposed to have and supposed to be before God, because we are doing that, then the charges that the world or charges that anybody else makes doesn't matter. Only God's judgments matter. So no accusation can be made. And then the fourth promise is no condemnation. No condemnation. One who is following Christ, submitting to His will, is striving to be faithful, not perfect, not a single one of us here, especially the one standing before you, has any claim on any perfection. But if we're faithful, then we are not condemned. Okay. Notice it here in verse 34 of Romans 8. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Notice earlier in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. See that? The promise is no condemnation. God does not condemn us. If we're walking in the light, remember 1 John 1 verse, 4, 1, 1 John 1, uh, verse 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us of our sin. If we're doing that, then there is no condemnation. But people or Satan himself somehow in some way will begin to indicate to us that, that maybe, you know, what Satan likes to whisper to us is that, you know, you're not really saved. You're not really going to heaven. There really is no heaven. Okay? All that Bible stuff, it's, 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 it's just something to occupy you because you have fear in your life. How do you meet those doubts? Well, notice right here in verse 34 of Romans 8, God gives us a fourfold protection. In other words, when we start having some doubts, go to these four things. Read it with me. Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Crucifixion. More than that, He is the one who was raised. Resurrection. And He is the one who is at the right hand of God. Exaltation. 
And then further, verse 34, Romans 8, who indeed is interceding for us right now, intercession. Okay. That's the fourfold protection of God. When we begin to think about doubts, when, we, when, when our doubts seem to just overwhelm us, then go to these four things, the crucifixion of Jesus, resurrection of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus on the right hand of God, and the intercession of Jesus on the right hand of God. Not only has God not left us without representation in heaven, we have the very best representation in heaven. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have some thoughts, if we could have some interest, if we could have as, at least as much interest concerning the representation that we have in heaven as much as we think about the representation that we have in Washington, D.C.? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we, could, if we could focus our mind on the intercession that Jesus is doing for us, on the work that He, is, he has done for us, and, and the work that He continues to do for, for us. He's our advocate. He's, he's, he's our interceder. He is our mediator up there, and He, he continues to plead, plead in our behalf. He works in our behalf. He can all, he's the only one that can do that because He's been here. Hebrews 4, verse 15 he was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. sin. That's the kind of mediator we have. We, we don't have a mediator that hasn't been touched with, with our experiences. He has been touched by it. He's lived here. He's been here. He lived perfectly. Now he is our, he's our representative. He's our advocate. He's our mediator. He's our interceder. He's interceding for us. And so that's why we don't have any condemnation. Notice these promises, guys. No intimidation. No desolation. No accusation. No condemnation. And in verse 35, no separation. You see that? Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No separation. Now, it is true that if we want to choose, we've made it pretty clear than that, God makes us, if we want to choose to walk away from Christ, that will cause us to be lost. But if we want to remain faithful, God's going to help us find the strength to be faithful. Notice here Paul mentions seven possible disruptions. See that as he asks this question? He says, uh, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or da- danger or sword? Do you think Paul encountered all those in his life? You know he did. You know he did. In fact, if you look at the list that he gives us in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning along about verse 23, you'll see that most of these Paul had endured in his life. Paul he was no armchair quarterback. He, he, he was not a Monday morning quarterback. He, he was not some armchair theologian. Okay? He wasn't some uh, self-declared analyzer where he, he tells other people what to do. No, Paul was in the field. In the field, I would wield sickles brave and true. In the fight for the right, I would dare and do. That's Paul. That's Paul. Paul was out there. Paul had the the ultimate combination of both knowledge and experience. Knowledge and zeal. If we want to know that assurance that comes from God, then we also 
will not be afraid of getting our bodies bruised, our bodies marked up, and our hands dirty for Christ. We will never know that assurance unless we are out in the field wielding that sickle brave and true. And if we don't have that assurance, we're not going to have any influence. Okay. That's the way it goes. Without assurance, there is no influence. If you don't have assurance in Christ, you have nothing to offer anybody else because everybody else around here in this world walking around with a bunch of doubt. But with assurance, we can have influence, and with influence, we can have leadership, and we can be the light that Jesus wants us to be in this world. There is risk involved in this. That's what Paul is saying there as he quotes from Psalm 44, 22. For your sake, Lord, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. There's a risk involved. Paul knew that. Paul was willing to put his neck on the line. And we must be, too, if we want to know the assurance that comes from heaven up above. Blessed assurance. God provides it right here in Romans 8. Many other parts of the Bible. Two major ideals, though. First, God wants us to know who we are. And all the process that that he has gone through to make salvation possible for us today. In addition, he wants us to know the purpose of that salvation is to be conformed to to the image of his son. And then secondly, he says, I have some unshakable promises for you. If you stick with me, there will be no intimidation, no desolation, no accusation, no condemnation, no separation from me. Blessed assurance. We can have that. If we're willing to follow our Savior, won't you come this evening as we stand together, as we sing?